Hi, my name is Brendan Malone and you're listening to The Dispatches, the podcast that strives to cut through all the noise in order to challenge the popular narratives of the day with some good old-fashioned contrarian thinking. You might not always agree, but at least you'll be taking a deeper look at the world around you. Hi everybody, welcome along to this, another free-to-air episode of the Dispatches podcast. It is great to be back with you again. If you are new here, why not hit that little subscribe or follow button, whatever it says on whatever platform you're listening on right now. And maybe if you've been tuning in for a while and you enjoy these episodes, then please give us a rating. If your platform allows you to leave a comment or throw some stars our way, The more, the merrier. All of that really, really helps the show. And last but not least, before we jump into today's topic of conversation, don't forget that every single week we publish an exclusive patrons-only episode of the Dispatches podcast. This is a special edition of this podcast that only goes to air to our patrons who are supporting Left Foot Media with $5 or more per month. So that's about the cost of a cup of coffee each month. And in return, you will get access to an exclusive weekly episode of this podcast. So that's every single month. There's another four or five episodes, regardless of whether or not we manage to get these free-to-air episodes out. And of course, the big bonus is that on weeks where things are just too busy to be able to get a second free-to-air episode out, if you're a patron, then you are guaranteed that you will actually still get an episode of the Dispatches podcast every single week, no matter what. So all you have to do is go to patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. The link is in the show notes. And uh, sign up with $5 or more per month, and that will give you access to that patrons-only episode of the Dispatches podcast every single week. Right, now that the admin is out of the way, let's jump into today's topic of conversation, the myth of my body, my choice. And what we've seen, particularly in the last fortnight or so, really in a big way since the uh, overturning of the Roe v. Wade and the Planned Parenthood v. Casey rulings, in the U.S. Supreme Court, is that there's been a whole lot of noise out there about the issue of abortion, and in particular, a moral principle of bodily autonomy and a very, what I would call a very radical vision of individualism, a radical uh, vision of bodily autonomy, and it's probably most succinctly summed up with the common catchphrase you hear whenever this issue is raised, my body my choice. And it's not just abortion, though, where this issue is very prevalent. We heard the same sort of sentiment or a version of it during the debate in this country about euthanasia. We hear this kind of sentiment expressed when it comes to matters uh, regarding, um, you know, gender identity and self-expression. There's lots of places where this idea crops up and basically, and, and we've really seen this in a big way in the last 10 days or so since the Roe v. Wade ruling is that people are speaking as if my body, my choice is a self-evident truth. And uh, what I want to do today in this episode is I want to present to you the conservative vision of reality, which would say that that is absolutely not correct, that it is not a self-evident truth at all. In fact, it has to grapple with some pretty serious what I would call empirical experiential evidence, which points to the contrary, that in actual fact, my body, my choice is actually a problematic vision 
of reality, that it doesn't actually correspond to reality, and it is certainly not something that you can claim as a self-evident truth. And so what I want to do in this episode today is I want to show where this myth has arisen from. So I want to talk about the history, the philosophy, which actually gave rise to this, and then I want to unpack why I don't believe that my body, my choice, is actually self-evident at all. And then I want to look at uh, the serious logical flaws that are specific to the abortion question, why I don't think it uh, holds true. Even if you try to apply the traditional philosophical approach which gave rise to this idea, even why it fails those basic tests, and I want to show why it's actually not a sound position in regards to that issue, to, to certainly to build a pro-choice morality, quote-unquote, uh, on. And then lastly, because I'm, I'm hearing already, I can hear you. <laughs> I can hear you, my people, speaking to me down the, the, the magic of the wires. And I can hear some of you already saying, hey, Brendan, what about bodily rights? What about this whole thing of vaccines and COVID? Because, you know, didn't you take the position that you can't force someone to do something with their body that they haven't consented to? And yes, that is true. You, you can't force or use another person's body. But what I want to do is I actually want to explain why the emphasis is wrong. If you start from a position of my body, my truth, and claim that that is a sort of absolute right, that that is, uh, that that is the primary good here, uh, I want to explain why that's a mistake. And I want to explain why you, where we do have legitimate bodily rights, and we do have legitimate bodily freedoms, what actually it is that's primary and is more important, which gives right to those freedoms. And so what we've got here is I think it's really a prioritization issue. Uh, and also that gives rise then to some serious errors in thinking and, and then behavior as a result. So let's start by looking at some of the important ways that your body, your life, your existence as a human being is not actually autonomous. And in actual fact, despite the fact that we live in a culture of radical individualism, that is just not congruent with the reality of the human experience. It doesn't account uh, in a either a meaningful, I think, a substantial or a logically sound way for the reality of the human experience. So the first point is this, and this is very important, you do not will or bring yourself into existence. So you, your very presence here, your very beginning, the fact that you exist is not an act of your own autonomy. Other people bring you into existence. You depend on a community of persons for your very existence. And there is a, there's sort of two layers to this. First of all, there is a, what you might call your immediate community that brings you into existence, which, of course, is the community of your family, the first community that you are born into. And that is your mum and your dad. And we all know how that works. I'm sure I don't need to give you a lesson and how mummies and daddies have special mummy-daddy hugs, and they produce beautiful little versions of themselves, and they take lots of photos, and they stick them on the wall, and they celebrate your every milestone, and all that kind of beautiful and wondrous stuff that is part of what I like to call the beautiful cross of parenthood. And there's no doubt about it. I think uh, marriage and family and having children is one of the most important schools of love that you can ever attend. And the reality is that it is a, a school because there are some hard lessons to be learned in that school. And it's a beautiful cross. It's got these beautiful, wondrous moments and these great moments of challenge where great self-giving is required of us if we're going to give ourselves fully to that and flourish 
in that uh, space of of motherhood and and fatherhood. So there's that immediate family, that immediate sorry community, which is your family, which gives rise to you. But there's also a secondary community at work here as well, and that is the other communities, which have all helped to give rise to the existence of the immediate community, your family, which gives uh, rise to your existence, which brought you into existence. So obviously there's grandparents, the parents of your parents and the great-grandparents and so on and so on right down the line. And then there's all the other family members and other communities and I mean, maybe it's a, a local community groups or it might be your local church or whatever who have all contributed to supporting and nurturing that primary community which gave rise to you, uh, the communities that uh, facilitated your mum and your dad meeting each other, which obviously resulted in you being here. There, there's a, there is a, 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 a web, a network, a, a synthesis of, of communities and community which gives rise to you. So you don't bring yourself into existence. You're not autonomous. You, you, you literally can't say, right, I, as an individual, will create myself. It doesn't work that way. Number two, you do not sustain your own existence. Your ongoing existence is, is not sustained by you. You are not at all autonomous in that way. You require things, outside agents, that you are not capable of conjuring up yourself that you do not possess within you already and which you are not capable of bringing into existence outside agents that you need for your continued existence to sustain your existence. You need things like food. You need hydration. You need nutrients. You need warmth. So that's obviously relying on things like clothes or uh, some sort of blankets. And even in their most rudimentary forms, they are things that exist outside of you. You need shelter. You see, none of this stuff, although you might get to a stage when you get a bit older and you develop a few skills, or even to make a basic sort of rudimentary uh, covering for warmth or some sort of basic shelter, uh, once you're old enough to do that kind of stuff, you know, I'm not talking here about complex housing or anything like that, even just the basics, it still requires agents that you are not capable of conjuring yourself. Uh, and if those things, uh, like let's say, for example, the planet was to cease providing the necessary materials, or you cease to seek out and consume the necessities or use the necessities to make shelter and warm clothes and things like that, you would cease to exist because you are not autonomous. You are not capable of actually willing yourself into warmth when you are in the middle of a, a mountainous snowstorm. You are not capable of willing yourself to hydration. You have to actually find liquids and consume them. You are not capable of feeding yourself the vital nutrients that you need without actually finding the food, the outside agent, which has got to go into your body. You you depend on that. You cannot satiate your own hunger and satiate your own essential need for nutrients to remain alive uh, just by willing it to be so. You, you can't do that. And in fact, in a lot of cases, you again, you actually need a community, a much bigger community of people who are all at work to ensure that a lot of those things are often made available to you, particularly when you were younger and you were just 
uh, very unaware and very incapable and very vulnerable because you don't even have the basic physical attributes or knowledge necessary to do a lot of those things, uh, let alone when you get into adulthood and you still need a, a wider community at work to ensure that those things are easily accessible by you. A really good example of this, by the way, and it's it's kind of an interesting one because it is kind of womb-like, it's kind of amniotic in that this is an outside agent which totally envelops us and surrounds us. It provides to us the vital nutrients and essentials that we need to continue to live and flourish, and it provides a vital layer of protection. If we didn't have that protection, we would be dead within seconds. So it very much is like a womb. It's kind of amniotic. And that outside agent that we all depend on is the atmosphere of this planet. If the atmosphere of this planet was stripped away, we would cease to exist in a matter of moments, if not seconds. So this is something that gives a really clear example of the fact that we are not actually as autonomous as we like to often think of ourselves as being. Number three, your ongoing bodily autonomy is fundamentally dependent on the actions of others. So this idea that you just have this thing called bodily autonomy that you sort of just wander around the place exercising or living out is actually quite, I think, deceiving when you stop and think about what's actually required for that to truly be a reality. You see, all it would take is this. If the majority of people stopped following basic moral norms, and I'm talking here about respect for other persons and their property and their well-being, then your bodily freedom would all but cease to exist. Your bodily freedoms are dependent on the community around you actually holding to, and certainly the majority of them, living out those basic moral norms about respecting others and treating them and having regard to their well-being as individual human beings. If that wasn't present and the majority said, well, it's might makes right, survival of the fittest, do what you need to to survive, then we'd all be in trouble. And basically at that point, our bodily freedom effectively ceases to exist because the rest of the community is not willing to grant that to us. They're not willing to cooperate in that process. And the only way you could ensure a sort of measure of bodily freedom would be in a temporary sense. So you'd have to be stronger than the other people around you. And so what that would mean is that if you've got someone you encounter, you have to be stronger than they are. It's a bit of a crapshoot, as the cool kids might say, about whether or not you would get bodily autonomy, depending on how vicious and how powerful the person is that you're going up against. Uh, if maybe it's a group of people, you're going to have to have a larger group of people who are going to be stronger than that other group to protect you. But eventually that will all come to an end. There will be a point at which you can probably not pay those people or sustain those people or whatever it is that uh, that allows you to call on them as your protective force, your protective army. There will come a point at which they maybe no longer see you as being useful to them and they just stop listening. And at that point, it's all over. So the best you could ever hope for, and it would only really be a minority of people, is some sort of temporary or or very, very um, uh, superficial and and constantly under threat version of, of bodily freedom. So the fact that you have bodily freedom today is actually uh, in no small way is it due to the fact that the majority around you, the community, actually conducts itself in a particular way. Number four, your flourishing depends on the self 
giving of others. So your ability not just to exist, but to truly flourish as a human person. Others actually need to make sacrifices for you. They need to make sacrifices of their body, their time, their resources to actually grow and mature you as a young child and then as an adolescent. And then in order to advance in life as you age, you need to encounter people who are willing to actually do things like teach you and employ you or even simply extend uh, you know, authentic friendship to you. Like without that, you can't really fully flourish as a human person. These are all ways in which your flourishing depends on the self-giving of others. You are not autonomous in that regard. You, you, you can't uh, create a, an autonomous version of friendship. That just, that, that, that just does not exist. You can't, uh, even artificial imitations are just not the real thing. So a talking computer that speaks to you is not the same thing as another human person that you can truly give yourself to. There's something so very different and unique going on there. And so there is something in our flourishing that is lost without the presence of others and, more importantly, the self-giving of others in our lives. And, of course, as you age, your place of honour and your sense of meaning in the community is only really made possible if people who actually no longer need you in their lives are actually willing to keep you in their lives when there is ultimately nothing in it for them. In fact, often as we age, there is more cost and effort and self-giving required on their part as we become uh, older and a bit more frail. And that's not a bad thing. It's actually a really good thing because it's the cycle of life. It's humanity. It's a beautiful thing. It's this uh, vision of reality where we are born into a situation where we are totally vulnerable and dependent and then we move through that journey and we grow in our strength and we have the ability to be a bit more independent and use our independence uh, to, uh, to be put at the service of others and then as we age we become vulnerable and dependent again it's a very very beautiful cycle I think when it's lived out fully and some cultures live that out really well and the western culture used to live it out just as well as anybody else but of late I think we've lost sight of a lot of that but your flourishing is really dependent upon the self-giving of others you can't do that in an autonomous sense and if we just stop for a second and think about point three and point four, which is that uh, three is that your ongoing bodily autonomy is fundamentally dependent on the actions of others. And number four, your flourishing depends on the self-giving of others. What that means is that our, our personal freedom and our personal human flourishing and the fullness of those experiences is ultimately the outworking of communal obligations. It's not actually about me, the individual, and what I'm doing so much as it actually is about the community and these communal obligations that we have to each other. Now, that's an important point, and we'll come back to that one in just a minute. Number five, and this is a really, really important one, you cannot actually do whatever you want to with your body. That, that, is, that has never actually been a thing. Despite the fact of late that we are really acting as if it's the self-evident truth and that you can just do whatever you want to, the reality is, even now, in this day and age, that is absolutely not true because bodily autonomy is something that is always restrained because bodily autonomy is not and cannot ever be absolute. If you want to have a proper, free and flourishing human society, you cannot have people wandering around doing whatever they want to with their bodies without any regard to other persons or to, to sort of basic precepts and moral norms. 
A great um, quote about this that sort of sums it up very perfectly is Oliver Wendell Holmes. And apparently he once said, your right to swing your fist wherever you want to ends at the point at which my nose begins. So it's fine to swing your fist through the year uh, when you're at home by yourself, but if you're in a crowded bar and you're swinging your fist through the year and you're hitting other people, you can't just turn around and say, my body, my right, my body, my choice. You can't. It doesn't work that way. Bodily autonomy can and it should be constrained if you plan to use your body in a way that will cause deliberate harm to another person or to another community of persons. And yes, for those who might be wondering, that would also include things like the act of making pornography. Because the reality is we often, I think one of the big traps we get fooled into today with liberalism and this whole notion of my body, my choice, is it fools us into thinking that my actions are solely about me and those in my immediate vicinity, or maybe those who will come directly in contact with my actions. So uh, we think about the issue of pornography and we say, well, I'm going to make pornography. It's my body, it's my choice. And then those who want to consume that pornography, it's their body, it's their choice. And we think that's sort of the end of the matter, the sort of basic transaction between two quote-unquote consenting adults. But in actual fact, that's not true at all. This idea that it's, it's just about us and maybe us and the other consenting people, individuals that we encounter, completely ignores the reality that all of us, those who participate in actions and those who might engage with our actions, uh, or, or even not in any sort of immediate or direct kind of way, we live in community. And, and what that means is that there are communal ripples to individual behaviours. One of the very serious errors that we've had uh, in this modern period it's been this whole idea of separation of public life and private morality, as if somehow they can exist in two different spheres or planes and never the twain will meet. And you get people saying things like, well, I'm personally opposed to chicken racing, but I'm pro-choice on the question and I think we should have legal chicken racing because people should be free to choose. And it's something I'm personally opposed to, but, you know, of course, personal, public separation and all that kind of stuff. It's just a nonsense because if you're truly personally opposed to something, then you're also going to be publicly opposed to it. It's just that simple. It really is that simple. We're not talking here about questions of preference where there is legitimate difference, you know, like which ice cream flavour do you think is best? You know, you wouldn't ban a particular ice cream flavour just because you didn't like it. That's a preference question. This is about more than that. This is about moral action and the impact of moral action in the world. And so the sort of notion that you have a, a public and a private sort of life when it comes to morality, I've never ever understood that. To me, that is like suggesting that you can have a local public swimming pool with a urinating section and a non-urinating section in the same pool. Uh, it doesn't work that way. The moment someone starts urinating in the pool is the moment we all get to enjoy that yellow salty goodness apologies for any horrible images related to that metaphor that are now circulating or floating around no pun intended floating around inside your head but I think you kind of get the point there's a there's a really important saying that I, I cling to and I'm really passionate about and I think is very important for us to recover and that is this that character is who you are when no one is looking and what we tend to think of is 
Uh, a very, very famous and recent example of this, of course, was um, Bill Clinton and the whole Bill Clinton, Monica Lewinsky scandal. And people tried to make the separation there and said, well, that's his personal life. What he does in his personal life has no bearing on his public life. And I would say that's an absolute nonsense because your character in your personal life tells me about your character in your public life. They're not two separate things. So if a man is willing to do that and to to violate the most fundamental promise of honesty and commitment that he's ever made to another human being is marriage vows. And he's willing to just uh, degrade that and stomp all over that and completely disregard it. I think it's absolutely naive in the extreme to think that he will uh, respect and hold as more important and as more sacred uh, vows and promises that he makes to us, which are actually less important than his wedding vows. If he's not going to hold to one, then it's almost certain he's going to struggle to hold to the other. So character really does matter. And character is about who you are when no one is looking. When no one is there and you can get away with things, who are you? Are you the same person that you claim to be in public? And so I think an important aspect of this is this idea that if I supposedly have a personal belief about moral action, that would also be reflected in my public beliefs and my public actions, maybe from a politician, about how I might vote in that regard. This idea of separating the two just does not make any sense at all. It is not something that I think is actually logically sound. So if this bodily autonomy absolutism or near absolutism is not grounded in the reality of the human experience, and I think I've just provided five solid um, pieces of evidence to show that it doesn't actually correspond very well with the human experience and that in actual fact we are not particularly autonomous individuals. Where then did this idea come from? If it's not coming from uh, you know, the objective, if it's not coming from the experiential, if it's not coming from the empirical, where did it come from? Well, that's a good question. Very important question. I'm glad you asked it. The answer is it came to us really courtesy of the Enlightenment liberalism that so dominates our culture today, or it did until recently, where we are now seeing Marxism start to dominate a lot more. And uh, if we get time, we might talk about why that is, because Enlightenment liberalism tends to actually give way to Marxism. It just creates the fertile ground for that. We'll talk about that in just a second. But basically, the Enlightenment is a period of history. There's a little bit of um, disagreement amongst the experts about when it starts and when it ends. The two dates that I quite like are, this is part of the canon of possible options on the table for, for beginning and ending of the Enlightenment, is 1637, which is when uh, René Descartes publishes his Discourse on the Method. And so so there is some experts who say that's the start, that's the, the sort of the, the beginning point, if you want to pin a tail on the donkey at any point, so that's the beginning point, that's the beginning point of the Enlightenment, and then the end date I like is 1789, which is the beginning of the French Revolution. Now others might say, well, it's a bit later than that, it's when John Locke dies a bit after that, but I think uh, I think those are two uh, pretty good dates to settle on. Regardless, it's around that period. The Enlightenment involves thinkers like René Descartes, who's in France, Immanuel Kant, who's in Germany, uh, Thomas Hobbes, who's in England, uh, Benedict de Spinoza, who's in the Netherlands, uh, John Locke, who's in England, uh, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, who's in Geneva, obviously part of modern-day Switzerland. Um, and, and these various thinkers are all part of the Enlightenment philosophy, which creates the, the bedrock for um, this notion of my body, 
my choice. Now, here's an interesting observation. I, I quite like this one. I think it's a very astute observation. It's not my own. Uh, it's actually something that uh, Yoram Hosani, who a great writer, by the way, who has just published a book in the last couple of weeks, a very good book that I would highly recommend. I think it's a very important book called Conservatism, A Rediscovery. And he makes this very astute observation that all of those men I've just referred to, the sort of the leading lights of the Enlightenment liberalism philosophy, they were all childless. So Immanuel Kant, Thomas Hobbes, Benedict de Spinoza, John Locke, none of them have kids. René Descartes, he has one child outside of wedlock, his daughter, and she has died tragically of illness uh, by the age of five. And Jean-Jacques Rousseau has is it five, five kids, I think five kids, and he abandons them. So he has them with his mistress, and he abandons all of those five children in infancy to an orphanage. And Yoram Hosani makes this very important point that these men didn't live out that first and most fundamental and important of communities, and they created a philosophy in their own image that reflects that, which elevates the individual to far too high a point in the hierarchy. There's far too much of an emphasis on individualism, and ultimately it's what he refers to as a, a sort of a bachelor philosophy, and I think that that's a, that's a pretty uh, good observation. Here's the four key points, though, of Enlightenment liberalism. Number one, it proclaims that all people are created perfectly free and equal by nature. Number two, it proclaims that political obligation arises from the consent of the free individual. So you have to give your consent before you enter into obligation. Number three, government exists due to the consent of a large number of individuals and its only legitimate purpose is to enable those individuals to make use of the freedom that is theirs by nature. And number four, these premises are universally valid truths that each individual can derive on their own if they only choose to do so by reasoning about these matters. And by the way, that final point is why so many human lives have been sacrificed in U.S. wars on foreign soils trying to export the Enlightenment liberalism and the democratic systems that uh, are often tied to that into foreign countries because the assumption is it's just a matter of reasoning well and you will come to the conclusion that these are self-evident truths. And clearly what happens in a lot of those countries, uh, Afghanistan being the latest example, is that a lot of blood is shed, a lot of lives are sacrificed and it doesn't stick. Why is that? Because if it's a self-evident truth, it should stick. If you get rid of the dictator who's impeding the truth from you know, making its presence felt, then the truth should arise from the ether, right? Because it's self-evident. But clearly something's not happening as it should. Enlightenment liberalism is not delivering as promised. And in a lot of those countries, clearly what's happening is they have a whole nother version of reality. They have a sense of tradition and they look at these principles and they don't see anything that's self-evidently true. And often, in fact, what they look at is they look at the West and they see decadence, they see immorality, they see destruction of family, of community, and they don't see that as being self-evidently good for human persons and for 
communities. And I think it's a, it's a, a really, really important thing to understand that we've taken for granted these ideas. By the way, those four points are a summation that uh, Yoram Hazani has in his book. And that's where I borrowed them from. And I, and I think it's a great little summation about what Enlightenment liberalism actually is. Now, Enlightenment liberalism, these ideas, they're doing okay for themselves, but they start to hit a bit of a speed wobble in the sort of early 1900s. And things are actually looking quite positive. And there's even people, even within uh, the Christian tradition, who are suddenly proposing ideas like, well, perhaps this is the promised kingdom of heaven, the return of Christ. He's, he's come back and, and God's kingdom is going to be outworked. It seems that we've reached this new stage of enlightenment. And it's this amazing gift. And there's that kind of talk is starting to happen. And then all of a sudden, because it seems that we are progressing towards something better and brighter and more beautiful, and then all of a sudden two major events happen that completely upend that idea. The first is World War I and then followed closely by World War II. And some scholars I know now talk about this concept of World War I and World War II actually being the same war. So World War I never really concluded. And the Treaty of Versailles was such a destructive thing to the German people that it actually created the perfect fertile breeding ground for Adolf Hitler and for World War II. And so some scholars talk about this idea of, yeah, they are two separate things, but one is actually an extension of the other in that regard. The point is, though, that what World War I and World War II um, produce in the world is just horrific carnage and bloodshed and, and genocide on a scale and in a way that we've never seen before. This is mechanized warfare. It's not simply armies fighting. It was not uncommon, for example, several hundred years before that for two armies to take the field of battle and for them both to weigh up the odds and realize, well, uh, we're totally outnumbered here, so we maybe need to sue for peace uh, before we all get slaughtered. Very, very different. And the concept of face-to-face armed combat or combat in the time of chivalry and things like that, it's a very, very different concept to, to when you're talking here about gunpowder and tanks and gas and shelling. It's a very, very different thing. And the brutality and the barbarism of the Nazis, it just would not have been possible on the industrial scale that they were able to execute that vile, repugnant genocide with that would not have been possible without the modern technological era. It just all of that sort of came together in a way that made people suddenly realize, okay, uh, maybe the promised period of enlightenment is not actually delivering as promised. And there are other things as well that start to make their presence felt too. There's some economic harm, some very big economic uh, crises. And, and, and all of this starts to give rise to people and thinkers and philosophers who are saying, well, the enlightenment has failed us. And you get this sort of pushback. And and what you actually get at that point is the, the rise of postmodernism. Postmodernism is a reaction to a lot of the failings of Enlightenment liberalism. And out of this, you get Marxism and cultural Marxism. They are they're reacting to things uh, that, are, that are failings in Enlightenment liberalism. Now, ironically, though, the end of World War II actually also breathes new life into liberalism. A couple of things or a couple of reasons for that. 
One is that you have a whole lot of men who come home from the brutality and the barbarism of World War II, and whether that's the brutality and the awfulness of the Pacific theatre or whether that's the European theatre and the horrors of the Nazi death camps. It's just sort of inescapable, the barbarism of it. And you can't blame these men for this. They come home from that evil, horrific brutality and they just want to sort of live and let live. And there's also a bit of a myth that some promote around that time that you know, that Nazism was the result of, uh, you know, sort of a dogmatic adherence to tradition. That's what gave rise to Nazism. It's not true, but it sort of all helps to sort of fuel this notion that we're all just better off if we just live and let live. You do you and I'll do me. And so that breathes a bit of new life back into liberalism. And then, of course, the Cold War kicks off. And the Cold War necessitates an alliance between liberals and conservatives because they both actually do have some similar instincts which are good and one of the things they have which is a good instinct is that human freedom does matter so to conservatives human freedom is important but it's not held up in absolutist terms and in the same way the vision for that and how we arrive at that is not the same as it is for enlightenment liberalism but that instinct that we both share obviously puts us at odds with Marxism and the, the serious threat that arises during the Cold War. Now, that alliance, though, effectively between liberals and conservatives in the West, what it tends to do, though, is it creates a situation in which liberalism really ends up sort of gutting or um, undermining conservatism. Conservatives, for whatever reason, didn't hold their own. Instead, they sort of just said, OK, here's the points we agree on. Don't talk about the differences. And what that really does is it seeds the ground to Enlightenment liberalism. And so it sort of becomes a more dominant philosophy. And what you also start to see, and this situation is still very present today, you have a lot of people who say, I'm conservative, when what they really mean is I'm a libertarian or I'm a liberal who has certain perhaps fiscal ideas that are often identified as maybe being more conservative. And even that is not always the best uh, identifying of those ideas. But so, for example, someone might say, well, I, you know, I, I support uh, free market economics. Uh, so that makes me a conservative. But in actual fact, they are very liberal when it comes to moral questions. And so there's, there's something, there's a disconnect there, an intellectual disconnect, because that's not what conservatism actually is. And so that's, that situation starts to arise, and it's still with us today. A lot of people say, well, I'm conservative um, because I'm opposed to Marxism. And, and, and that's, that, that's sort of missing the point. It's a false dichotomy. It's assuming that it's a, a struggle between conservative things and Marxist things. And people often wrongly label Marxist ideas as being liberal ideas. And, and there's, there's a difference. There's quite a difference. So it's, it's, a, it's an issue. It's a problem that's still with us today. Now, as I said earlier, though, liberalism ultimately ends up giving rise to Marxism. It's this funny and very strange irony which actually makes sense when you stop and think about it. We, we see a, a, a perfect example of this, actually, uh, in, in the Planned Parenthood versus Casey ruling, the Supreme Court ruling of 1992. And that was a court case that uh, was a, effectively it was a challenge to the original Roe v. Wade ruling, but it, what it did was it upheld the Roe v. Wade ruling. That has also been overturned in the, uh, the recent... Um, 
court case, uh, the Supreme Court case that everyone has been rather hot under the collar about, the overturning of Roe. It also overturned Planned Parenthood v Casey in uh, 1992. And there is a infamous statement that was made by one of the justices in the um, the final ruling in that case. And here's this infamous paragraph. Let me read it to you. At the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, and of the mystery of human life. Beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under the compulsion of the state. Now that statement is just absolutely astounding when you stop and consider it for a second. This is something that's in a Supreme Court judicial ruling. And here you have a judge who is saying things that are philosophy, not particularly good philosophy at that. They are, as others have rightly pointed out, they are ultimately religious and spiritual in nature as well. And they are just absurd when you think about it. I mean, is it really true that at the heart of liberty is the right to define one's own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe and of the mystery of human life? I imagine that a lot of scientists might actually say, well, hold on, you don't actually get to define your own concept of the universe there, buddy. (laughs) That doesn't really play out well. I mean, this speaks to effectively this vision would not be society. This would be anarchy if everyone lived their lives this way. And this is why uh, Enlightenment liberalism gave way to the relativism that so dominates our era today as well, because it's just up to the individual to define their own vision of what reality ultimately means. And of course, the second part of the statement, beliefs about these matters could not define the attributes of personhood were they formed under the compulsion of the state. To which I say, well, okay, now apply that same principle to slavery or to murder or to rape or to theft. You would not accept that idea in that context. So why would we think this is a self-evident universal truth that you are proclaiming here? Uh, Obviously, this was an abortion case, but it just these things don't really hold true. But this is sort of ultimately a very infamous moment where, if you like, the full heart of and full flourishing fruit of liberalism is on display for all to see. And this really arises from this notion. And this is how we I'm getting to the point here for those who are wondering how it gives rise to Marxism is this idea that lies at the heart of enlightenment liberalism is that all people are created perfectly free and equal by nature. But that's absolutely not true. We aren't actually perfectly equal by nature at all. My neighbor has more money than I do. My wife has different attributes and skills and capacities than I do. I I can't give birth to a child. She can. I have things that I can do with my physical strength that she will never be capable of doing. And it's not just simply a matter of we're two different people. It's a general norm that exists between men and women when it comes to bodily strength. There are lots of differences between us. There are a lot more men in the STEM fields than there are women. And what happens, though, is the Marxists come along and they say, yeah, you told us, liberals, that we are all supposed to be perfectly free and and, and equal by nature, here's a point of inequality. There's an inequality of outcomes, so there must be oppression here. The fact that there's not as many women in STEM must be caused by oppression. And what it does is it, it, it creates some really bad outcomes built on this original bad idea that we are all just perfectly equal by nature when we're not actually that way at all. 
Now, we are equal in our inherent human dignity. As a person of tradition who is a conservative, I would say in the Judeo-Christian tradition, we would always acknowledge that every person is sacred because they are made in the image of God. And that means that we all have what we call moral equality. And, and I have a respect that is owed to me. You have a respect that is owed to you by virtue of your human nature. And something abhorrent and wrong is being done if we deliberately do harm to you. We violate your dignity. We kill you. We steal from you. There's a violation of your human dignity going on there. But this idea that we are equal, perfectly equal in all things and, and, and that we should be perfectly free in that regard as well, it's not true. You can't have a society that way. It isn't reality. But Marxism then clings to that and says, hey, here's areas where people are not equal. This must be oppression. And then obviously comes the call for revolution on the back of that. And what happens is, is that there is a, a demand for rights. You know, there's oppression. You have to give us more rights, quote unquote. And so what happens is liberals who sort of are stuck in a pickle, they, they can't sort of talk their way out of this uh, foundational philosophy that they claim is a self-evident truth. And so, okay, here's some more rights. And what happens is the sort of the radicalization of autonomy just increases and increases, and there's more and more radicalization, more and more elevation of the autonomous self-choosing individual as the greatest good. The irony in this, of course, is that the more radical autonomy you have and the more radical your autonomy becomes and your idea about personal autonomy becomes, the more that unjust oppression increases. Because what happens is without any sort of normative standard, and that's no sense that you have communal obligations and, and that the community has obligations to you as an individual and that you as an individual have obligations to the community, that there are sort of uh, obligations of virtue and morality and conduct that really mattered and must be held up and respected and, and treasured in the public and in the private life. Well, what happens is if it's just about autonomous, self-choosing individuals, then the most powerful autonomous, self-choosing individuals will always win. And those who don't have a lot of power, and in a lot of situations, that's actually quite a few of us, that they are on the losing end of that particular deal. And here's the thing, the, the modern emphasis at the moment on um, consent training in the area of sexuality doesn't really provide meaningful protection from that problem either. Because here's the first thing about this idea, as soon as you start invoking consent as being an important principle, you are now moving away from radical autonomy or just autonomy and the individual who actually has the right to define meaning and existence and everything else. You, you are now actually saying that we need to go back to tradition and to cling to moral tradition. And you're also, what you're doing is you're building it on the notion that sex is actually not simply two autonomous individuals engaging in mutual self-gratification. That's the Enlightenment liberalism vision of sex. It's two autonomous individuals who choose to gratify each other at the same time. Well, that is not the conservative and not the norm of tradition, and consent, though, makes sense in the conservative tradition because in the tradition is that sex and bodies are actually sacred things. And so you must reverence sacred things. And there is always an approach that requires that reverence. And obviously, consent is an expression of that reverence. But if you define that tradition away, that sex and bodies are sacred and therefore must be treated like sacred things, 
by saying, well, no, you get to define your own concept of existence, of meaning, of the universe, morality, and everything else. It's up to you to decide whether it's sacred or not. Then basically consent is nothing more than a paper-thin social construct. And in that sort of environment, what you end up with is a situation where powerful people are easily able to obtain what you might call, quote-unquote, coerced consent. Because they will hold things that vulnerable people need. And they are always in the weaker, more vulnerable position when there isn't a binding mutual obligation at play between the relationships that we enter into and engage in with the people around us. Now, in regards to this whole question of bodily autonomy and abortion, there are some specific flaws that I just want to touch on here. And then I want to finish up by explaining and answering the question, but Brendan, what about bodily rights? Are you saying there's no bodily rights? No, I'm not saying that. And I want to explain how bodily rights are actually real and how I think we come to those things. And it's not through the doorway of individualism. It's not through the doorway of enlightenment liberalism. So first of all, the abortion-specific problems. And this is interesting enough, this is how even enlightenment liberalism which is the principles you know, of Enlightenment liberalism are being invoked here to try and justify abortion, my body, my choice, those very principles would also refute that notion that you could apply this with abortion. You see, what happens in an abortion is there is a human body, at least one, and if you're pregnant with more than one child and an abortion takes place, then there's more than one human body that is destroyed. So a human being has their body destroyed, has all of their choices taken away from them, and they never give their consent for that. So their very bodies are being destroyed by a group of people claiming that bodily rights are are fundamentally important. You can never force someone to do something with their body that they haven't consented to, and these same people are using that, are invoking that principle to destroy the body and the choices of another living human being. That does not make any logical sense at all. It is a self-refuting concept in the highest order, to the point of absurdity, I would argue. Now, people often as well invoke other uh, metaphors or examples, and one of the most common ones I've seen over the last few days, it's starting to do the rounds again, and initially it might seem quite robust, but in actual fact it's not when you spend more than five minutes thinking about it. And, And this is people who sort of um, claim that the you know you can make a comparison with organ donors, and so uh, an organ uh, or a person who needs uh, to be a recipient of an organ donation, so someone who's sick and who needs organs and replacement organs, and if they don't get those organs, they will die. They can't force you to donate one of your organs or any of your organs to them at all. They can't force you to do that. It's a voluntary. Uh, self-giving that is required on your part. And so people make this comparison and they say, well, you can't force someone to donate their organs to you, so therefore you can't force a mother to donate her organs to an unborn child for nine months. Well, there's some huge flaws in that approach as well because, first of all, there is an obligation that we all have, and I think we all recognise this, and I'll use another example in just a moment to back this up, but we all understand that there is an obligation uh, to actually protect and to care for those people that we make vulnerable. So a person who needs an organ donation is not made vulnerable 
by me. They are made vulnerable by the illness which plagues their body. But if I engage in the sexual act and I bring into existence a brand new, totally dependent, totally vulnerable to the point their very life is in my hands, dependent human being, then I have a moral obligation to that human being because I put them into that situation of vulnerable dependency. They didn't put themselves there, I put them there. Now let me use an example, a metaphor, uh, nothing to do with abortion, to explain why this is true. And I think we all understand this actually to be uh, a very obvious truth. Let's say, for whatever reason, our government, maybe they're just not liking the bad press they're getting at the moment, and so they decide that they are going to invoke war against Australia. And they uh, engage in an act of conscription, and they say that every fighting age male, every male between the age of 15 and 35, has to report to their local town hall or city council and they are going to be drafted into the army. They've got no choice about it. They're going to be put on ships and they're going to go to Australia and fight a war. And surprise, surprise, like a lot of these things, Australia wins. And very quickly, they turn the tide on us and they have all of our troops, all of our men over there captured. And then the Australian Prime Minister rings up our Prime Minister and says, look, we've got all your men here. We're not going to do any harm to them, but you need to organise all of the resources and the time and the funding and the ships and the planes, get them over here, come and collect your men and take them home. We haven't got enough food to keep feeding them. We're going to run out in a couple of days. We're not going to do any harm to them. We don't want any ransom from you or anything malicious like that. But you have to take the time and the effort and the resourcing to come and get them. And if you don't, we're going to run out of food in about two days and they're going to die. Now, imagine what would happen if our government turned around and said, no, we don't want to do that. We could, but we don't want to do that. We've decided that this war was actually a bit of a bad idea and it would be better for everyone if we all just forgot about it and moved on. So, no, we're not going to come and get those men. We're just going to leave them there to die. Imagine what would happen. The public outcry would be huge. Everyone would rightly say, no, you have a moral obligation to go and get those men and to bring them home and to secure their safety and their well-being. Why? Because you put them into that state of total vulnerability and total dependence. Their very lives now are dependent on you. But they didn't do that. You did that. You brought them into that. They didn't ask for that. You put them into that situation. So you have a moral obligation to them. Now, if that principle is true in that situation outside of a womb, then why would it not also be true for the totally dependent, totally vulnerable human beings that we put into that situation inside of wombs? It seems to me that it's a universal moral principle, not situational ethics. Secondly, there's a huge difference in what is going on here. So let's say that I come to you and I say, please, can you donate one of your kidneys to me? I really need a new kidney. Otherwise, I'm going to be in real trouble and I'm likely to die. And you say, for whatever reason, I just can't do that, Brendan. And so you don't donate your organ to me. And sadly, I die of the illness that affects my body. Did you kill me? No, you did not kill me. You are not responsible for my death. My death is a secondary and unintended consequence of your decision to say no. That's what happens in the organ donor situation, but that's not what an abortion is. In an abortion, an abortionist goes into a womb and deliberately 
and directly, with absolute and full intention, kills an unborn human being. So in one situation, we've got unintended death that happens as a secondary result of an action. and the other one, we've got a deliberate and direct intentional killing. They are not the same moral act at all. This is not a valid comparison at all. What this argument is completely failing to recognize is that there is an even more important human right than your bodily freedom. And that right is the right to life. It is the most important human right of all. Why? Because every other human right that you exercise depends on you being alive. If your right to life is not respected, then you cannot exercise your right to freedom of expression, to freedom of religion, to freedom to own property, freedom to marry, any of those other human rights. They cannot be exercised if your first and most important human right is not respected. It is why it is often referred to as the fundamental or the cardinal or the primary human right. It is the only human right that every other human right depends on for its actual existence, its ability to be exercised. It is the most important human right of all in the hierarchy of our rights. And what this bodily autonomy argument with abortion is trying to do is it's trying to say that a lesser secondary right could somehow be invoked to trump the most important human right of all of another group of human beings. And so there's something very, very important that's going on here. If we go back to that organ donor argument, what's happening there is there's an unintentional secondary death. But in the situation of abortion, there's a deliberate killing. There is a deliberate depriving another human being of their right to life. We're deliberately depriving that innocent, vulnerable human being that we made vulnerable of their most important human right at all. That is not the same moral action at all. So in the abortion context, despite the fact that people throw this thing around with great gusto and talk about it as if it's the self-evident, irrefutable, divinely infallible sort of idea, it is absolutely nothing of the sort. And there's actually a lot more that I could say about this, but I but I won't because that would turn into a whole podcast. There's a whole lot more we could really unpack in this. But those are some of the, the key points that really show that it just doesn't really hold up in this context. Now, as I said, I can hear some of you saying, but Brendan, what about bodily rights? Because we do have bodily rights, don't we? You're not suggesting that our bodies are the property of the community, are they? No, that is not what I'm saying at all. So I want to explain now why and how we can arrive at the, the notion of bodily rights without enlightenment liberalism. The first thing to understand here is, and I am someone who is proudly a conservative in the Judeo-Christian natural law tradition very much in the traditions of guys like Edmund Burke and I think this is the, the guiding light uh, uh, this is like a really reliable philosophy for for not just individual living but also for communal living as well and one of the important principles of conservatism is that we are born into communities and that these communities give rise to bonds of mutual obligation. So I'm bonded to the community that I'm born into. I don't choose it. It's something I'm born into. And there are mutual obligations that are part of being bonded to that community. So the community has obligations to me, and I have obligations to the community. Bodily autonomy cannot be viewed as a primary good. Instead, it must be seen as a fruit of the much more important good, which is respect 
for the human dignity of other people. Basically, bodily freedom is an outworking of the golden rule. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. And no rational person seeks their own harm. If you've got someone who is seeking out their own harm, we can generally say that something has gone wrong there. So it's pretty clear that we could say then that we should do unto others, we should respect their human dignity, that we should not ever dominate, abuse, kill, thieve from, destroy, you know, all those other things, enslave another human person because we are failing the golden rule. We are failing the obligation Uh, the bond of obligation, of mutual obligation that we have to respect the human dignity of others. That's part of being born into the life uh, or to the communal life that is the human existence. This is a this is basically a recognition of the communal nature of 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 the human experience and and our human flourishing. It relies on that to be uh, lived out in the fullest uh, and most truest way and in a way that gives rise to the good. And this is what gives rise ultimately to our legitimate bodily freedoms. So the first and primary good, if I could just labor this point a little bit more, is not me as an individual and my choices. Instead, it's the dignity of the other. And it's a mutual respect. You respect my dignity. I respect your dignity. And as a result of that communal engagement, that communal obligation being outworked, bodily freedom, legitimate bodily freedom arises in our communities. And by the way, there is no contradiction here because I can hear maybe some of you, the wheels might be turning and you might be saying, but Brendan, didn't you make a bit of a thing about uh, vaccine mandates and people being sacked from their jobs if they didn't get a COVID vaccine and how you thought that was wrong? Isn't that a contradiction? with the whole issue of the stance you take on abortion, you know, isn't, isn't it my body, my choice? Isn't that really what you're saying with vaccines, but you don't accept that with abortions? To which I say, no, that's not the principle that I actually, and I've never endorsed that, this idea of my body, my choice as an absolutist principle, because I don't believe that is the case at all. There's no contradiction here in rejecting abortion and saying that's not a legitimate act of bodily autonomy versus saying that um, someone choosing to say no to a COVID vaccine is a legitimate act of bodily freedom and it shouldn't be violated. You see, here's the thing, and here's how this is not a contradiction. Respect for the human dignity of other people requires us, the community, to extend the freedom to those people to reject a medical therapy that carries risk, that involves moral action or is burdensome or unnecessary. And I think any fair-minded person is going to have to agree that a COVID vaccination meets at least two and probably three of those criteria. First of all, it is a medical therapy that carried risk. And uh, this was made even more heightened, if you like, by the fact that it was a very new piece of technology. And so we didn't have a full appreciation for the long-term risk profile here. Now, people might say, oh, the risk was small. Sure, but there was still a risk. And if you were one of the small uh, minority of people or the, you know, the minority of people who actually got afflicted by the harmful outcomes that this vaccine can cause, those harms 
in cases were pretty serious. They weren't, they weren't insignificant harms in and of themselves. It wasn't like there's a minor risk and the risk is that you get uh, half an hour of, of, um, of hives and then it's all over. No, no, because you know, that would change the moral equation. Being a conservative, I'm not a, a, an absolutist. I'm not a bodily autonomy absolutist. I don't believe in radical individualism. So what that means is I believe you can actually make a case if the context is sound, if the situation, if the scenario is actually up to scratch, uh, you know, the medicine you're proposing, the disease, the threat of disease, all that kind of stuff, I believe you can actually make a case for the moral legitimacy of mandated vaccines. But in this case, with COVID and with COVID vaccines, I don't believe that criteria was met. So there was a risk involved. And so a medical therapy that involves risk, people have to be uh, respected, have to have the human dignity respected, where they actually get to choose themselves whether or not they will take that risk on. Uh, secondly, uh, this is the one where there might be some um, debate, but I think there's the question of moral action in all this, because obviously some of these vaccines involved uh, the use of aborted fetal cell lines. And I know there was a lot of pushback from some quarters about this, but the simple fact is they did use that technology. And by the way, saying things like, oh, but, you know, there's lots of other medicines that also use those technologies. That's not solving the problem. That's just highlighting that there's even more products out there on the market that raise this moral objection or create this moral problem. And so the issue was, well, what do you do? Now, there is a moral principle here about cooperation with evil that actually allowed people in, in good conscience who felt that they were in a situation where they absolutely needed to take this vaccine. So the risk was real and they needed this vaccine that they could actually take the vaccine and they would not be doing anything morally wrong by taking that vaccine because they were not directly participating in that original evil that gave rise to the the moral, the ethical problem here associated with the va these vaccines. But what that doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that the vaccines suddenly become morally okay. And that was a confusion I think a lot of people had. I think they thought that meant that the vaccines were morally fine. No, the moral problem still exists. It's just that the end user is not culpable for that. And, and that, that's an important thing to understand. Now, that point, though, might be debated or disputed by some people who would say, well, I come to a different conclusion about the moral thing. Okay, that's fine. Uh, there's still one more point here. Uh, they are not burdensome because I don't think it is burdensome to receive a vaccination. You know, it's quick injection in the arm and all done and dusted. I don't think that's a particularly burdensome therapy at all. Uh, but lastly, there is a point here, and that's the question of necessity. Was the COVID virus such, and especially in light of the fact that the vaccines didn't stop transmission, uh, was the, the, the uh, COVID virus uh, enough in the majority of the population, or and particularly in those cases where people were forced into it at the threat of losing a job or being socially excluded, was, was it an actual fact a necessity for those people to take the vaccine? So was COVID a serious enough illness? Were they in the high-risk profile group? And in actual fact, for a lot of people, they weren't actually in the high-risk profile group. And so you could quite safely, I think, argue that uh, by failing to recognise this uh, graduated level of risk that some people, like for example the elderly or immunocompromised, were in a much more vulnerable position than people like me. 
And so therefore, there's a different moral equation there, but we try to treat everyone the same. And so that changes the question of whether it's a necessary medical therapy. It might be necessary for one person, but not at all necessary for another person. And then, of course, uh, in regards to necessity, there's the whole issue of, well, what about testing as an alternative? So people, for example, could still keep their jobs, even if they chose not to be vaccinated, but they would just undergo a regular test uh, to ensure that they are not taking the, the virus into their workplace, which, by the way, actually turned out to be the more prudent thing anyway, because people who got vaccinated could still carry the virus. So there was this sort of bizarre, silly shell game going on, people wandering around pretending like they were immune to COVID and that they couldn't pass it on to other people because they'd had a vaccine. Uh, whereas in actual fact, uh, you know, if you'd allowed people not to have the vaccine who wanted to exercise that legitimate bodily uh, choice and who, uh, and, and in return for testing, they would have probably been safer people to be around because they would have picked up a lot quicker when they were positive and would have withdrawn from the community. It's actually quite an effective tool in that regard. Now, here's the thing, though, on the flip side of that, respect for human dignity. Again, remember, I'm a conservative. This is not about radical individualism. I'm not an Enlightenment liberal. So that means that respect for human dignity also requires that I, as an individual, would never knowingly and deliberately expose the community, so another person, to un necessary risk. So I can't just say, well, I'm not getting a vaccine and I'm not taking any other precautions. I'm just going to do what I want to do. That would be a moral failing on my part. You see, in the conservative tradition, there is always an interplay. You might call it a tension, but there's always an interplay at work between the good of the individual and the good of the community. Remember, we are born into communities which give rise to bonds of mutual obligation. So I have obligations to you and the community, and you, the community, have obligations to me. And what this position does is, is it avoids the evils of both radical individualism, where the individual just says, I do whatever I want and I don't care, this radical autonomy which acts as if there is no obligation to the community, and on the other extreme, the evils of collectivism or utilitarianism, where you just get the collective, the group, the largest majority, they get to stomp all over the individual. No, there's always a tension there. There's always a, an interplay between the two. There's a mutual bond that uh, of obligation between the two of us that always is being outworked. And and this is why, uh, you know, the conservative position rejects utilitarianism. You don't just get to say, well, the greatest good for the greatest number means that I can force you to do things that you don't actually give your consent to. I mean, we, we could make an argument there for all sorts of horrific things. While the greatest good for the greatest number of people means that we should forcibly hold certain people down once we identify that they're the right blood type with the right organs and end their lives and then harvest all their organs because we can bring about more good in the world. We can maximize good in the world, you know, the greatest good for the greatest number by doing that to those people. And we avoid that evil by recognizing that there is always an interplay between the community and the individual. So the individual must have uh, you know, a moral obligation that they respect towards the community and the community has moral obligations towards the individual that they must always respect as well. And by the way, just to quickly finish this up with this point, um, one of the mistakes I think that was made during this period was to uh, mistakenly believe that the common good was some form of collectivism or utilitarianism. The common good does not mean 
that uh, what is the greatest good for the greatest number or what the majority wants, that equals the common good. That's not the common good. It doesn't mean the good that is common to the most people. What the common good is, it's those goods that are common to all human persons to a good, stable, just, peaceful Uh, flourishing human order, human society. And so what that means is that there are goods that must be respected and human dignity is one of those goods and it must be respected. You can't stomp all over human dignity and then turn around and say, well, you know, it was the common good because the majority wanted to do that. That's, That's a failure to understand that principle. So just to finish up with, and this is really important, Other persons, in a nutshell, must be received as gifts by me or by you, and also they must be received as a calling. They place a calling on us, an obligation to make my life into a self-gift towards others, for the good of others. This is love your neighbor. This is do unto others as you would have them do Unto you. And this is the important point that I want to finish with. Freedom is a gift that is given to me by the community. I am not autonomous. I don't bring myself into existence and I don't actually give myself freedom. Freedom is a gift that is granted to me by the community that I am born into. And therefore, my freedom should be returned to them in kind as a gift from me. So I receive freedom from the community. My freedom arises from their respect of those mutual bonds of obligation that we have towards each other. And then in turn, I gift my freedom back to the community. It's not for my own selfish license to do whatever the heck I want to. It's a gift I return to the community as an act of uh, outworking that bond of mutual obligation on my side of the table. And so what I think this means is that to deliberately deny other people the most important right of all, the right to life, which was afforded to me, is actually a serious moral failure on my part. I am alive only because other people respected my right to life. So to turn around and say, I'm not going to respect the right to life of another human being is actually quite a serious moral failing on my part. And I think it's important to keep that in mind. So yes, there are legitimate bodily freedoms, but the emphasis is is different here. They don't arise out of this misguided notion that I am just this autonomous, self-choosing individual. Instead, bodily freedoms arise in a community context where there are obligations. And it is this notion that every human being has human dignity, which must be respected, which is what gives rise to bodily freedoms, but those things are not and never can be absolute on either side. If you get into absolutism on the community side, you end up with collectivism, utilitarianism. If you get into absolutism on the individual side, you end up with radical individualism and the harms that that causes and the destruction of community and of society, ultimately, if it's allowed to persist uh, unchecked. Right, to finish up this episode, I've got just something completely different now. It is a moment of poetry sent in 
by the Poetic Patron. Now, if you are a member of the Left Foot Media Patron community and you receive the weekly uh, patrons-only episode of The Dispatches, you will know of the Poetic Patron. It's one of my patrons who regularly sends in original pieces of poetry and I like to read them out on air. And this week... I received a special treat where I had two poetic libations offered. So one of them was read out earlier this week in the Patrons Only episode, and this one here I thought I would save for today's free-to-air episode. So here's a little treat for your ears from the poetic patron. It's called Phobia, spelt F-O-E-B-I-A. Of all the phobias in this phobic world, the worst I know of I call phobia with an F-O-E. All the enemies that are invented out of our deep fears, insecurities and paranoia. When we accuse one of being phobic, we are projecting our demons and faults onto the other. This is a defect of inner ego. Be cured of this curse. Say it is not them. Say that it is me. I am foe myself. Then learn the path to making peace within. So there you go. Thank you to the Poetic Patron. I love that. Another excellent poetic offering. And I hope you all enjoyed that. Thanks for tuning in. And don't forget, if you want to get access to that extra patrons-only episode of the Dispatches podcast every single week, and they're a pretty sizable podcast, they're usually sort of two to two and a half hours long each episode. So it's well worth the effort. All you have to do is become a patron at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. The link is in the show notes with $5 or more per month and you will get that patrons only exclusive episode every single week. Thanks for tuning in. Don't forget, live by goodness, truth and beauty, not by lies. And I will see you next time on The Dispatches. The Dispatches podcast is a production of Left Foot Media. If you enjoyed this show, then please help us to ensure that more of this great content keeps getting made by becoming a patron of our work at patreon.com forward slash leftfootmedia. Link in the show notes. Thanks for listening. See you next time on The Dispatches. Mm-hmm.